Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cycling community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. Hans Noe Ray is riding mountain bike history for over 34 years. Trials, Team GT, Zaskar, Swatch, Laguna Reds. Performing at the Atlanta Olympics closing ceremony are just some of his highlights. He covered 47 adventure trips in the past 26 years. That's how Hans grew the sport and left impressions with many for life. We talk about how he never made it to university, but to Laguna, how a painful race crash gave him a signal, how he rode his first e-bike for nobody less than President George Bush Sr., and why he, as a Hall of Famer, feels it is so important to preserve the mountain bike history. Oh, and one more thing. With his own charity, Wheels for Life, Hans has collected money to donate close to 15,000 bikes to people in great need of transportation throughout the developing world. Enjoy the ride. Hans, good morning to Laguna. How are you? I'm doing good. 007 is, record, is reporting to Her Majesty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, this is episode 007. So, um, Hans... Uh, If you if you look out the window, what what do you see? A lot of water and sky. Now I'm I'm here in Laguna Beach, my home, and from our bedroom we have an incredible ocean view. I can see the Pacific Ocean, Catalina Island. It's a little bit misty today, but it's a it's a very it's my my wife my it's my wife's office. She claimed the desk up here, but I took it today, so I have better audio um, in our bedroom for this recording. We appreciate this. Thank you to your wife for sharing her office. So Laguna, is that LA or is it is it uh, a separate part of LA? Well, it's it's between LA and San Diego. So about an hour and a half in either or an hour, depending on traffic in each direction. And mm. it's it's Southern California. It's, um, it's a beautiful spot, really. Um, a lot of people, but um, there's also really a lot of really beautiful nature and um, California. So what brings a Swiss guy to Laguna? When did you move there? Bicycles, bicycles, bicycles. Um, I, I, yeah, just a quick, you know, people are always confused about my nationality and stuff. I am Swiss, like you said, and I'm also got American citizen ship about 12 years ago but i'm actually born and raised in germany near freiburg and my mom was german and i have a german tongue what they say like a german accent so and i was riding bikes i was a trials rider and trials biking bicycle trials um was a sport that was associated with motorcycle trials in europe in the right. back in the 80s and but then when mountain biking grew up Trials riding was part of the mountain biking boom, and they had these 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 trials competitions on mountain bikes, and 
And one of the American trials writers who used to come and write the hardcore competitions in Europe, the, the, the real good scene was in Europe. And um, he told me one day, Hans, there's a new sport in America. It's called mountain biking. And you should come over there and show them what real trials riding is. And at that point, I was about ready to go to university in Stuttgart and to really end my career. And I thought this would be a great way to end my career, to have a trip to America. And I came to visit. I took a vacation semester from my university. And they're still waiting for me at the Fachhochschule in Stuttgart to come back. And, and what, what would you have started in Stuttgart if you didn't end up in I was, Laguna? I wanted, to be, I wanted to be a marketing guy. And I think that helped me throughout my whole career. I always had a bit of a sense for marketing. And I... I was um, publishing and printing. I was starting out to because marketing was very popular at the time and you couldn't get in, but you could have transferred over. And so that was the idea. And I started out with a, an internship. Some, some of these schools require you to actually work at a, at a business. And my internship was at the ZDF, which is the biggest uh, European TV network, or at the time it was at least. And, and from there on, I... I was supposed to then go back to the school for the second semester, but then I took a vacation semester. And yeah, like I said, um, and then I extended and extended. And um, 35 years later, I don't think I'm going to go back there. <laughs> yeah, but now you should have your, your master of marketing. I think I got it. And I think I, I learned a lot more than you can, you get taught in schools um, in many ways, at least, you know, there's, You know, so I'm, I'm, I have no regrets. Well, that's good. So everything started in Laguna. Um, once you were there, like how, how did you get the ball rolling? Did you already have a sponsor when you came there or, you know, did you have a name? Um, did you have, did you have a title? How did this Hans Ray adventure start? I, I had, I had. I had won championships in Europe. You know, I was one of the top 10 riders in the European trial scene. And, but it was all 20 inch bikes. Right. And this guy, Kevin Norton, he came, he was an American guy and he was sponsored and he wasn't even in the top 30 in Europe, but he was sponsored by these BMX and mountain bike brands. And I, we had always looked over with one eye to the BMX scene in the eighties. And, you know, like the, it was really professional. Some, these kids would make six figure salaries and, and clamorous in the magazines, driving Porsches. And we could only dream of that. I mean, we, if you were a top rider in Europe at the time, a top trials rider, you were lucky to get a free bike, you know, and. So this Kevin Norton guy came and he was sponsored and he told us, you, you got to come over and show Americans real trials. And I came and Kevin really, really wanted to get trials to take off. And he did everything to introduce me to not only the whole mountain biking scene and the BMX scene and the media and all these different sponsors. He would go to all these bike companies and say, hey, you should sponsor this guy and you should start making a trials bike and And I was really welcomed with open arms. And Kevin also made me a mountain biker in terms of, because until then I've never really ridden a 26-inch mountain bike and or a trail ride like that, you know. And and he was part of the Laguna Rats, which is this infamous mountain bike club from Laguna Beach. And literally in my first week or two there, he took me on a ride with them and To this day, I ride with these guys. They are some of the original mountain biking free ride. A lot of people 
say they are the original free riders, the Laguna Reds, the Robin Hoods of mountain biking. That, that club even is in the Hall of Fame now. But they made me a real mountain biker, and they were always into like riding hardcore stuff way before people were into technical and steep trails and carrying their bikes and adventuring and and so yeah, so that's how it kind of all got started. So like, that's kind of, I'm curious on Kevin. What 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 motivated him to to bring you over and to to push you into the trials and MTB? What he wanted the sport to take off in America and. He had really this huge passion for the sport. And he was at the time American U.S. national champion. And he took me over there very well knowing mm -hmm. or at least seeing soon that, that I was kind of stealing the limelight from him. But that was, that's what it was not about for him. For him, it was about the sport. And he started to, to create a little federation and all that. And see, in the, in the early days, a lot of people don't know that mountain bike racing was different that we had these so-called stage races in the mid-80s. And a stage race, a rider would have to do a downhill across country and a trials competition on the same bike. And all those three disciplines combined would give you your overall time or the winner. So we used to have these mountain bike races where in the trials part of the race, there was a thousand riders. I mean, imagine a that. Thousand. You know? And Yeah, like because everybody who did the mountain bike race had to also do the trials. And guys like Sap and John Tomek and Ned Oberen, they all had to also do the trials. And of course, it wasn't so much hopping on your back wheel. It was more like pedaling over logs and through riverbeds and, you know, technical riding. And then pretty soon afterwards, the sport started to diversify into different subcultures. And All of a sudden, the guy who did cross-country, they had a cross-country-specific bike. And the guy who raced downhill, that was way before we had full suspension, but maybe the first suspension fork started to come out or maybe downhillers used um, bigger tires or whatever. And then, the, and then the trials guys used bash guards on their bikes or rock rings. And, and then it started to split up into these subcultures and trials became a little bit more like the the spectator sport it was always at at the at an event everybody could watch it you right. know they could sit there on the lawn and it was a, a big show put on by the trials oh, guys and yeah. and and it was like a festival kind of atmosphere while the cross country race as cool as it is these guys would take off from the start and then they disappear in the forest for half an hour and then they come back quickly for the second lap <laughs> and the spectators couldn't really see much so so anyway, so, let's quickly back to the stage races. One bike. What kind of bike were you guys riding at that point? Well, there was only one bike. It was a, a regular mountain bike with no suspension, like a Richard Fork. Um, you know how they called them the balloon tires, which was like basically just a mountain bike tire that was maybe a 2.2 or 2.0 right. size tire. And yeah, the main characteristics were, you know, they all had probably triple chain rings and, and yeah, but um, the brakes were really like primitive. Like we now all used to hydraulic right. brakes. I mean, it took a long time for brakes and suspension to evolve and to get to the point where it is now. And so you said then things that, you know, diversified and uh, at what point did, Did you connect with GT? Well, right then and there, in the, after the first like six weeks or so, Kevin was again, he had this friend, 
Penny Westman, who worked at GT, and she was really involved in. She was a salesperson, but she was also involved in the BMX scene. And she and she went to Richard Long, who was the he's the late owner and co-founder of GT, and said, "You need to hire that guy. We need to have a trials guy." And GT started building me a trials bike, and at the same time. GT started seriously with their ATB program or their mountain mm -hmm. bike program. Before that, it was mainly a BMX company. They had a few mountain bikes in 85, and then they didn't have anything, anything in 86. But then in 87, when I came over, they also hired Bill During, who is an industry veteran. Mm -hmm. And he kind of took the GT mountain bike program by the horns, you know, the bull by the horns. And he, in, he came up with the triple triangle design and all these. And then later he was in charge of getting these full suspension bikes and titanium bikes and the Saska developed. And, um, and at the same time, they hired Rishi Graywall, who was a top cross country racer. And Rishi and I were basically the beginning of team GT. And, and at the time I was also kind of, mixing up with the BMX and skateboard scene quite a bit because BMGT was the... I'm sorry, how did this happen that you mixed up with uh, skateboarding? Well, because G, G, well, GT was a top company in the BMX world and they had the BMX freestyle. These guys would do would do freestyle BMX shows right. with quarter pipes at shops and at events and I would like tag along as a trials guy and we would set up a... bring in an old car or some boxes and obstacles And we would do shows together. But then at the same time, then GT sponsored me. Even actually a little bit earlier, a few weeks earlier, Swatch Watches sponsored me. And, and, and Swatch became a sponsor for 19 years. And that was a big reason why I, had the, why I stayed in America. Because when, 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 I, when Swatch said, we, wanna, we want you to tour America and do all these shows together with some skateboarders. And one of them was no less than the great Rodney Mullen. And we would like really tour for weeks uh, for them. But I was like, I was very nervous about not going back to university. Really? And, you know, back then, <laughs> nobody had ever heard of a guy making a living on a bicycle, or at least not longer than for maybe one season, you know, but, but to have a, to give up your whole career and, and all this was like a big, you know, and I had to like, there was a lot of pressure for me and I had to, And I, and I, this, the guys from Swatch promised me I could do an internship. And I figured that would look really good on my resume. Swatch was the, one of the coolest companies in the world at the time. And they promised me this internship. So with that in mind, I stayed another semester. The internship never happened, but, um, I stayed another semester and another and, you know, but I, I always, it wasn't always like easy because the, the mountain bike boom hadn't really started right. yet. The big boom, the, the big boom. Is I mean, we're, we're talking about, you said 87, right? Yeah. And that was mountain bikes were already popular and around, but the, the big boom, when it really hit the masses and the media, the main me media hadn't happened right. yet. And that, that happened about 90, 91. Exactly. And I'm, And until then, it wasn't always easy, you know. I mean, it wasn't like that that they were just throwing money at you. In contrary, you had to work hard for it. And and in my case, I was always a bit this sticking out. I was always different, you know. I was not your conventional racer, right. you know. But I would do I would do stuff that were a little bit different. And there came a point in the late '80s when I almost gave up and 
And I almost actually became a professional roller player in 1990. And uh, because like I happened to be in that whole scene when the rollerblading literally exploded or started in the house I was living in at the time, the aggressive inline skating. And I was already being paid by rollerblade to test products for them. And my roommates, one of them was also a BMX freestyler. He even changed and had then a huge career and the first inline magazine started in our house and I almost switched over and then my career to had a turning point and Richard Long the president of GT he said Hans why don't we do one of those videos it's so difficult to explain to people what you can do on your bike and we did a video production that was kind of the first of its kind because until then the only videos in the mountain bike world were videos of a cross-country race that were rather boring to watch. And we had this action-packed video, which was really, I mean, years before YouTube right. and, and years before any of these sports were on TV. And people, and these videos, what, what YouTube was for Danny McCaskill was VHS for me. And at the time, and, and sometimes I only realize it today, how big those videos were and right. how people were eating them up and to this day they memorize stupid one-liners i said in them or they they you said stupid one-liners became a philosophy yeah we, we were we were making fun of ourselves and we would do we would do just like we would say funky things that made no sense into the camera like whatever you know like this crystal is beaming is beaming uh, beams to mars and they sending me the latest tricks and people remember like just like But it's, it's these videos, they spread like wildfire and so many people wear them out. I mean, they watch them. If when they say they watched it a hundred times, right. they mean it. it. They're not just saying that. And they, and they watched it in slow motion. There was nothing out there. People were starting. Right. At, at that it. time, I mean, there was like only three TV channels. So, right. Yeah. And there was no, yeah, there was, so it was kind of a, a cool. Hey, yeah. you, you mentioned you lived in the house with, with different athletes. Can you uh, can you share some of like how did this come together? Living in in Laguna was what did you said skateboarders and BMX and rollerbladers. Yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, like I said, I was thrown into that scene from the beginning, and I had like connections through my with the, I, I was kind of thrown into with, with the BMX world and got to know all these people and even even rubbing elbows in the, with the whole Hollywood scene at the time, and and it was like a It was a really crazy world sometimes, what you got to experience. And and early on, I had a roommate in Huntington Beach. His name was Josh White. He was one of the top BMX uh, freestylers, uh, ramp riders at the time. And I I was like friends with a lot of these other, actually, literally guys that were my heroes, like BMXers, racers, and freestylers who I would, would have read about in the magazines when I was back in Germany. Right. And now I got to hang out with them. And And at one point, I moved with with one with another BMX freestyler, a guy from England, Chess Derenforth. We moved to Laguna before I lived in Huntington Beach, which is down, you know, half an hour north. And then we had another roommate who was a full-on surf, skate, musician, super talented guy to this day. He's like an um, unbelievable guy. He was like the – and he was the first ever – aggressive like inline skater who did kind of skateboarding stuff you know we call it now aggressive inline skating mm. and then my roommate's girlfriend she started the first ever magazine which became like 
it was called Daily Bread. And the first like eight or 10 issues were made from our house and we had a, a mini ramp and and it would be just like this whole action sports world. And, you know, it wouldn't be unusual that, you, I mean, I, you know, like I would do demos with Tony Hawk or I would, I would, I used to do demos with Rob Roscoe, who is now the, the president or the, the founder of, of Santa Cruz Bicycles. And he used to be a professional skateboarder. And back in those days, I would, I would literally like travel to places like Malta or, you know, like, and do shows with him and, so anyway, so it was um it was a cool world and it it really we got to rub elbows with these different sports and that's and that's what kind of inspired me uh to to step away from the mountain bike racing scene and to start doing more like these videos and free ride and adventure stuff at the time the word free ride didn't exist right. but I I watched these extreme skiers mm-hmm. And you know, growing up in Europe, we, we're familiar with the with the with the alpine ski racing right. scene. But here in America and in France, there was these extreme skiers who would jump off cliffs and do these and these ski movies would pop up everywhere. And I got kind of thrown into with that scene, and and I was actually very inspired by those kind of guys. And I was like, man, I don't want to be a mountain bike racer anymore. I want to become an extreme mountain biker. And take my trial skills out into real situations, like very technical, you know, writing situations. Right. And that's what I did throughout the mid early nineties. And only later when the, when the free ride boom then exploded and this word free ride was actually formed and the free ride could really evolve to a new level because we had new bikes, you know, right. in the mid nineties, we started having full suspension bikes. And all of a sudden, it didn't hurt so much when you jumped from a you know ten or fifteen foot drop you know and landed it you know and we had bit, we had bigger tires and all that stuff which we all didn't have when I started. So the sport evolved with its along with the equipment. So, so basically, just you know, I've, I've just just started to take down. You've been in a creative creative hotspot with inline skaters, BMX surfers, um, media. BMX, BMX, etc., and um, the, the, there was like the the Red Bull house of before Red Bull, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> did did you did you ever go to ski? Did you ski extreme skiing? Yeah, I I, I grew up skiing. No, I was never an extreme skier. Okay. Um, um, but I I I I am a, I am a skier and I still am. But um, yeah, but but Swatch basically paved the way for Red Bull. Right. You know, like with. At the early years, Red Bull was all about we we copy everything that's watched us, we inspire, and then of course Red Bull took it to a whole new level. While Swatch stepped away back, and they, their marketing moved away from extreme sports, and then Red Bull took over, and of course did an incredible job. You know, like never nobody could have ever dreamt of what they did for extreme sports. Right. But there was a lot of other milestones in between, like ESPN doing the X Games, which which trials and mountain biking was part of in the early days. And, and and another milestone for me was around that same time when we did the first video, um, Uli Stancio from the, the founder of the German bike magazine. Right. And the Europeans started to become aware of me. It's like, who's that European guy in America that everybody in America knows? And, you know, and, and mountain biking started to also get bigger in Europe. And Uli said, man, what man, Hans, why don't we come to Munich and we make a photo shoot and a big interview? And 
And over the next six or seven issues, we're going to do a big how-to series and teach people how to bunny hop and how to ride a wheelie and how to do all these things. And afterwards, we made a book. And that really, all of a sudden, I was also known in, in Europe. And that was also a, a turning point. And, and ever since then, you know, my, my career uh, was very international. You know, it wasn't just like bound to one country. It was really from from Chile to to Thailand, you know? Yeah. And so, again, like the video we've been talking about, that's the one that, that Richard Long from GT inspired you to, to do, right? The first one. Yeah. So what, what year? Do you, do you remember the year? Yeah, I think it was 92. Wow. Probably we started 91. And then in 92, we did this video. And like I said, it changed. It's probably the biggest milestone in my career. And then we did a second one where we went to Jamaica and wrote this waterfall, right. this cascading. It wasn't the vertical waterfall, this cascading Dun River waterfall. And it just blew people's mind. And even even riding in the snow, I went to Mammoth and rode the Kamikaze uh, downhill course in the snow. And I mean, nowadays, it's no big deal to see a mountain biker ride in the snow. Right. But back then... If somebody rode the steepest ski run on a ski resort on a mountain bike, people were talking about it, you know. So, and then and in those switch phases and change phases, uh, as you said, right? You know, mountain bike didn't had didn't really take off till the beginning of the nineties. So you were still switching between bikes, right? Between your twenty inch trials and and the mountain bike. Yeah, when I first came, you know, I I strictly stuck, you know, to my twenty inch trials bike when it came to competing. But then like in probably 88 and 89, I started to not only doing my trial stuff on the mountain bike. And that was another breakthrough thing because when people look at the 20-inch bike, they go like, ah, oh, that's a specialty bike. It's probably easy. You know, they couldn't relate to it. Right. But then when I took a regular mountain bike and I jumped up on top of the roof of a car from the ground, people were like, holy cow, this is like, this, you know, they, they appreciated it much more. And so, um, and then I also started doing some, I wanted to be not just that trials guy. So I started to do some downhill races and also some slalom races. And I tried to show people I can do more than that. And yeah, I was not the greatest in all these things, but I, I held my own, you know, like right. in the US races, I would be in the top 10. Or I, I mean, sorry, like usually between 10 and 20th place in downhills. And in slaloms, I, I could sometimes make the quarterfinals, and I even got a bronze medal at the World Championships in slalom. Wow! So you know, like I had fun with that, but um, at the same time, what what year and location was that? That was in Metapier in France oh. in '93 when I got when I got a third place in the slalom and I won the trials competition. Um, yeah, but then I also had a big crash um, in a. I had a big crash in a downhill race in Hunter Mountain and it was almost, it was a very bad crash at the time for mountain biking. The whole scene was really, you know, I ended up in the hospital for a week and I punctured a lung and, and broke a lot of ribs and it kind of made me realize that maybe I need to slow down a bit because my real value for, for my career was my, my trials biking skills. Right. And I don't want to, I don't want to cripple myself in a downhill race that I'm not going to win anyway. So I kind of put my focus a little bit back to my roots and focused a bit more on what I called it extreme biking stuff and the, you know, with basically the free riding antiques. Right. 
Yeah, and coming back to to the milestones or to the the mentors, like you mentioned, Uli, right, who started the bike magazine and then brought you over. Um, I think that that's where where you and I met the first time in '91, making this photo shoot at the bottom of the Zugspitze, where you did all these incredible yeah. trials moves on a 26 inch Zaskar, flying from yeah. gigantic rocks bigger than you and me together, and that was a a big one, right? Well, yeah, and that was also the Saska was one of the most iconic mountain bike models ever in the history of mountain bikes. And but that bike became really big and that bike had it came kind of wrapped with a really cool image, you know, like it was had kind of an attitude and and it, it was this all round bike that could do it all. And it literally won a World Cup in every single discipline. And that bike, GT used me a lot uh, to promote that bike and that photo shoot you and me did was my very that was my very first saska and i took it with me on a europe trip and we got to meet each other and to take some photos and and yeah <laughs> that's how it started so zaskar it has an image and attitude and and yeah i think that that's uh, puts it together nicely it, it won a world cup in every discipline you know in, in its varieties um which brings me like to your to your team members Right. I mean, you said you started with Rishi Grewal and then, and now uh, many more joined this, this famous, uh, team GT. So, um, yeah. C can you share some of your memories there? Like how that team grew really to be one of the strongest in the nineties? Well, team GT was always a powerhouse. And yes, I got to rub elbows with a lot of the best riders ever. And, and it was for a long time and it still is to a degree, you know, like if you, If you're a professional mountain biker, you you have kind of a lot of them have this dream in the back of their head. One day I want to ride for GT, you know. And I mean, it's not because GT was the number one bike brand in the early '90s. You know, they were like they were like ahead of Specialized and Trek and Cannondale and all of those guys. So, and Richard Long was always big into supporting events and and riders and races, and he believed in sponsorship. And that's why he sponsored a lot of riders. And he brought a lot of riders from BMX over to mountain biking. And those were all those guys who started then dominating the, the early gravity days when in the, like I said, in the late eighties, downhill became its own discipline and sl dual slalom emerged. And a lot of these riders had a BMX background and they knew how to jump and they right. knew how to do technical riding. So. And Richard, Richard really was a visionary. And unfortunately, Richard, you know, for those who don't know, he died in already in 96, you know, um, tragically in a, in a motorcycle accident. But um, he was um, an incredible person and really changed not only the GT brand, but the whole industry he changed, you know. And there's actually a book written about his life that should be coming out um, very soon, nice. hopefully this year. Yeah, he, he definitely, as you said, uh, put a lot of firsts into into mountain biking. And I was speaking first at the, at the events. Uh, do you remember this this big truck? <laughs> yeah, we had a factory truck. That's when the people talk about the golden days of mountain biking. I mean, we were like superstars. I mean, we had these huge trucks, which now maybe the Tour de France teams have, you know. And we had like eight riders. And I mean, there would be guys like Steve Pete, Nicholas Vuillot, Julie Furtado, um david baker i mean 
uh, Brian Lopes, Eric Carter, all these people were at one point or another, the Assertons were, you know, were all like GT riders. And in the 90s, we had a huge team. We had budgets. It, mountain biking was on TV. There was huge spectators coming to the event, you know, and it was just like bikes were selling like hotcakes. And it was, it was a, it was a very cool time to be part of it. And it was a bit of rock and roll. You know, there was characters like Missy Jovi and later when Sean Palmer came to the sport and gave it a bit more of a help, help to give the sport a little bit more of an attitude and lifestyle. You know, it was a little bit predominated by racing in the early nineties. And a lot of it was a bit like too much stopwatches and Lycra. But um, slowly the the sport evolved and and that whole free ride segment then kind of helped, you know, like open the doors to a whole new kind of mountain biker. People who would have probably never became mountain bikers all of a sudden started riding mountain bikes because they were into some, you know, other aspects like jumping or being extreme or rad. They, they just... They just uh put up a nice piece of, of your garage in, in, on pink bike. And if I remember right, you said that you was GT now for 34 years. Is that true? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So 1987, right? Yeah. You know that that's when, when, when I left high school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That dates us. I mean, I mean, I would have never saw that. I mean, this, a lot of people say this is one of the longest, uh, athlete, um, sponsor relationships in the world period. I mean, especially in the action sports, the cycling world, I know that Steve Caballero, he's a famous state skateboarder. He's been 40 years with Paul Peralta. But um, I, I don't know. There's not many people who have had careers like this. I mean, I guess there somebody has to be first because, I mean, right. th like we said earlier, that job, didn't, that job didn't even exist before I started with it. So, <laughs> right. so no wonder I have the record. <laughs> so you, you definitely took the opportunities that, that uh, Richard gave you, right? And... Uh, The will to do this in in an open mind, which is great to see. So, you know, speaking about you know the trend of mountain bike and it took off, um, you know, then in the in the nineties, uh, you know, then the free riders were kind of like I, th I think the hottest one were the fro riders, right, from Canada. Um, did you ever consider, or did they approach you to come on the team? Uh, well, no, they weren't. I mean, it was different at the time. So I did my extreme biking videos, which were basically, you could say that those were the early or first free ride videos. And then, and then I actually focused my, right around the mid nineties, I focused my, my focus on started to do more like adventure trips. And I, I focused on getting TV exposure. I figured, you know what, it, it, the way I can help my sponsors, especially the bigger ones like GT or Adidas is to reach people outside the immediate mountain biking world. And I started doing these documentaries. And in the meantime, these fro riders, you know, like, like Richie and Wade and Tippy, you know, were the original fro riders. They started doing these films. Right. A lot of them came from, from, from guys who did ski films before. And, you know, they were starring in those films and they used the, uh, um, the full suspension bikes and they started, um, really making free riding a thing and coming up with the word as a matter of fact there was a, a fight over it because they were called the the rocky mountain free ride team and cannondale at the time 
protested and said, we have that word free ride copyright, copyright on it and you can't use it. So then ma they made fun of it and called themselves the Fro Riders. And, and then it was, there was kind of a time when the sport was ready for the next evolution and with, you know, it downhill also started to take off. People like Sean Palmer came to the scene. Like we said, full suspension bikes and, and, and they never, I, you know, I had my own career, my own thing. And I remember meeting the Fro Riders for the first time, maybe two or three years later at, at the Garda Festival. And they were all like super stoked to meet me and go ride with me. And, and, and ever since then, we all been friends and I've done a lot of rides and trips with them. So I went to your webpage and uh, started counting your trips. So from starting in August 93 in Jamaica till today, I counted 47 trips in 26 years, Hans. If you're going to ask, like, yeah, what was your highlight? What were the highlights of those 26 years in the trips? You have to, yeah. I mean, those are those are major projects. We want to say, like, you know, going a week to Nepal. Right. Other than that, like, I was every other weekend too traveling somewhere, you know, like for a show. But like you say, those are probably the major trips. And I mean, the the biggest one has to be when I did like four years ago. I I did Mount Kenya and Kilimanjaro back to back, and that was that was not only the biggest, but it was also the hardest. Uh -huh. And we had we had Danny McCaskill along, and we got to make a really cool documentary film about it, which is now on my YouTube channel. And it was a, the real deal, and we'd done something that had no, nobody had ever done before. And um, but then there was so many others and so many firsts, you know, from going to Machu Picchu on the bike to going into the rainforest in Borneo looking for headhunters. And literally staying with wild tribes out there, or and then I, I always try to have a little storyline for my adventures. You know, it wasn't just riding a, a rad place. I wanted to have a mission to go from A to B, or to do something that nobody had done, or to ride a historical route, and to have a little side story and and educate the people and show them some mysterious stuff. You know, I literally went went to China to look for an alien dwarf tribe on one of my trips and people were laughing at me and they probably still are, but there was something to it. And, and we were like shadowed by the secret service and we, it was like a, a real adventure. And, and, and then like five years later, I get a phone call from the history TV channel and they said, we're doing a story on this mysterious tribe in China and out of our research, we found out that you are the closest to ever gotten to it, you know? And I was like, ah, see, <laughs> I'm not that crazy. There's something to it, you know? And, and then you and me did a, did a, a bunch of really cool trips with Greg Herbal together in the early days. And we, we, we combined it with sometimes with the Rock Shocks Explorer trips at the time where we all were part of. And I remember going with you to South Africa and visiting the, right. <laughs> the, the, the lions and the, The elephants, yeah. yeah that those were, were 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 crazy good times. Um, you know, I, I consider them not just the the heydays of mountain biking, but the, the of, of creativity. You know, as you said, we we, we found uh, supporters, we found uh, great ideas. I want to come back to ideas to you. Like, how how do you come up with those ideas for your trips? You know, about aliens or headhunter or like uh, what was it? Um, headhunters. How do you come up with the ideas? 
I was always interested in these mysterious things and 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 sometimes I read stuff in books or you know and and I just listen and and look around and see also how I can make it interesting but it's kind of self-serving interest I always wanted to see the pyramids so I go there right. and then I was a, at the time I was a big fan of Eric von Daniken and his series and and I read his books and and I actually went to meetings where he was there talking and I get to I I got to know people who had inside information about some of these things and literally when we went to Egypt in 2001 I interviewed Dr. Sai Hawass who is the guy with the golden key to all the the pyramids the guy you always see in the discovery channel with the gray hair he um we asked him questions about some really controversial and mysterious things about the pyramids that wouldn't become known news until two or three years later. And um, so it was always kind of like a little bit of a being an Indiana Jones on two wheels, you know. So it's not just about the writing, even though there was plenty of first descents and stuff we'd done that nobody had done before. Um, to keep it keep it real. So the, the, this this author you just mentioned, probably many people don't know him, but uh, Eric van Daniken, also Swiss guy. So he wrote many many uh, books that you read. Yeah, yeah. He he was the first person to kind of write about these subjects of is it possible that life on Earth was started by extraterrestrials? Oh. Just in. You know, but he goes like and looks at the evidence in the world. Like, how can we explain these the Easter Island statues or the the Stonehenge or the pyramids and and these biblical like legends? And he, he tries to interpret interpret those things and read through it. And a lot of the stuff he said, and he was ridiculed when he first started writing those books in the late sixties, has become true now, and it's common belief. And a lot of things. You know, and people believe in, or there's evidence that there have been ancient civilizations, and and so he was always talking about these mysterious things, and often I made that kind of a, a theme to one of my trips. Do you have an example of of what what became true of what he made up? Uh, oh, there's so many things. I I, but he was even even like genes and stuff. Like you know, when they find these these weird like mummies or in in Egypt with like half a ox and half a crocodile, a skeleton, and it was like gene manipulation from from the ancient days. And we know now that's possible, and it's not like that you know like. But there's anyway. I I don't have a really a, a really good example okay. off the top All of right. my head, but there's hundreds. So. You mentioned like you know you've been part of of teams of 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 uh, clubs of tribes um gts being the the big race team but you mentioned the beginning the laguna reds um it, it's a, a very special mountain bike club in laguna and not everybody can get in can get in right how does it how did you get in It's one of the oldest clubs in the world. They have a couple underground races that are, you could consider them the longest standing cross country race and downhill race in the world, two different events, which we annually have, but they're underground. They kind of, we call them commando productions. And it's usually just for the club members and whoever we invite. And we had big names there and, and 
you know, like, and big names who couldn't win against the locals back in the days, you know, the downhills and stuff, because the locals, the club is so good and many good riders, but they everyday people. Yes, some are working in the bike industry and some, some are pro riders or have been pro riders, but others are just like a dentist or a carpenter or a school teacher. But to become in the club, it's like a fraternity. Mm -hmm. And only if every member gives you a yes vote, you can become a member. And there's about 110 members these days. But this club's been around since like three years before I got there. So since like 84 or so. And we are still having a ride every Wednesday night um, uh, in Laguna Beach where we ride. And we had a lot of top guys join us for a ride from Nino Schurter to John Tomek and, and over the years. And it's kind of a, a hardcore ride. Everybody's always impressed. But the main thing is the camaraderie. You know, we have a fire pit afterwards and somebody cooks. And, and it's just like a... A very, very special uh, group of people who happen to make part of mountain bike history. And, and like I said earlier, they made me a real mountain bike and they were hardcore. I mean, they would hike up gnarly, steep stuff. They write stuff that somebody like, I remember John Tomek ran into us once in the hills, him and Herbold, when we were on a rats ride. And they, they joined us for the last downhill and when we got to the bottom and we sat at the fire pit, I heard John Tomek say, wow, that was a new dimension of steep. And that's what the Laguna Rats kind of embodied. And to this day, a lot of the guys are now, some of them are in their 70s or even older, but they, a lot of them still write new and are so hardcore and it's so inspiring. I, I remember, right. Kirk, I remember when I was 20 years old and I did one of my first Rats rides, and we hiked up some long hill in Laguna with the bikes on our shoulders. And I was like, there was a couple guys there that were already 40 at the time. And I was like saying to myself, there is no flipping way that I will carry my bike up any of these hills when I'm 40. And now I'm almost, you know, I'm, I'm knocking at 55 and I'm still riding with these guys. But a few of us have now discovered the e-bikes and there's now an e-bike contingent. But if you think it's <laughs> e-bike was fun until you ride with the rat, now all of a sudden it's like it's like it's like a whole different workout and all the trails, you know, like in the in the old days it was like a, a bragging ride. Oh, I cleaned the trail. That means you rode a trail down without putting your foot down, and you know, like you would you would claim that, and it would be like something you would strive for, right. you know, that you could say, I cleaned this and this trail. Now it's the opposite with the e-bike. Now we try to clean him going uphill and that's a whole new challenge. And that makes it so much fun. And that's one of the reasons why I'm really hooked on the e-bikes and I haven't given up on regular bikes. Don't worry. But um, I think e-bikes are such a great way and they really show the spirit of mountain biking, that, that original spirit from the early nineties when everything was fresh and new and you were, Everybody who was there was so glad to be part of it because new stuff would happen left and right and nobody had expectations. That's how it is a little bit with mountain biking now, uh, with e-biking. And, and to be part of that again, and yes, now people have expectations and they think it should be exactly like the regular mountain bike, which I'm disagreeing with. I think we should let e-bikes find their own identity and let them develop. And yes, some things will overlap, but not everything has to overlap. And 
And we certainly don't need cross-country e-bike races because they make absolutely no sense. But that's a whole different that's a whole different subject. We'll, we'll go there, but I'm still curious on some of the things you just said about the the Reds, which uh, is really impressive to have a, a club since '84 uh, and uh, all these meetings and and all of them are tough rides. You said that they made you a real mountain biker. What what you know? Can you dig in there a little bit? What does it mean making becoming a real mountain biker through the rats? Well, they they did really hardcore rides where you push your limits on a weekly basis, and they and it was not just you know there were endurance rides, they were hard, but they were also hard. We rode the steepest stuff, and there was literally a time, and and of course for me it was perfect because um, I had this trials biking background, so that adopted really well to the mountain bike, and I could ride all the steep stuff with my trial skills. And you asked me, how did I become a member? At the time, I was supposed to go back to university. <laughs> Again. And I was only, Again. I, 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 I had only ridden with the rats for a couple of months and I was going back, you know, tr for the summer. And, uh, you know, at the time I wasn't sure if I would come back and the rats thought, oh, it would be really cool to have a European member in our club. Let's make him a member real quick. Because the funny thing is usually it takes like two or three years And it, it's really hard to become a member and they make it on purpose. Like a fraternity, they put you through all these challenges and stuff. And I kind of got like whisked into the club because they thought it would be cool to have a European member. So, <laughs> so, but, um, yeah, so that's, um, but what I wanted to say about the real mountain biking, I mean, so I, from the beginning, I was kind of drawn towards more like the steep and technical stuff that, you know, like it, it wasn't really seen in races. And that's what I used in my old early videos. But I mean, you're going to laugh about this. I was as cocky as I might have been. There was a time when I claimed that I would ride anything on a mountain bike that anybody in the world would do. And that's how cocky I was or whatever, or how little or few people maybe did that stuff, you know. But then came a time when these free riders start to show up, like you said earlier. And then I started to say, okay, I'll do everything that anybody does twice. Because some <laughs> of these guys would just blindly, blindly go down somewhere and maybe luckily pull it off. And then since then, it's like, there's like a million things I wouldn't do that other people do. And like, it's so funny how the sport has evolved and exploded. And I can go into every little village in the world in Bavaria, where you are right now. And there's probably a couple of kids and can, they can do stuff that I cannot do on a bike. And that's how, how crazy it is, how this sport has come a long way in just like uh, less than 30 years. Uh, going quickly back to your cockiness of like, you know, you, you write anything and even twice, Did anything go wrong there every once in a while? Well, no, I said I would at one point, then I stepped back from saying I write anything, but I said I write anything that anybody else writes, writes twice. If they do it twice and don't just got lucky one time, then I'm going to give it also a try. But if they can only do it once, that they might have gotten lucky. So that's what I okay. mean. But then, but then the level Im improved, and then all of a sudden, guys like Bender started using six or seven inch suspension bikes. When I was still like, first of all, I was not in the business for throwing myself off, off cliffs. I would write steep stuff down, but I, I was also still riding a hardtail to a, to a great degree. And full suspension bikes, when, when I finally switched to one, it was a full-on eye-opener. I remember, I give you another example that happened a few years later. That happened probably in 19, 
98 or so, I, I used to go up to Vancouver to do trial shows at some bike shop in, in the, in Vancouver. And after one of these shows, all the local guys who worked at the shop say, Hey, you should come ride with us to North Shore tomorrow. And I said like, well, but I only have my Saska hardtail bike here and my cross country helmet. I said, oh, that's perfect for that. You know, that's all you need. So, so the next morning, 20 guys, all these legendary North Shore people show up and everybody with like six, seven inch bikes, full face helmets, knee pads, arm pads, elbow pads. And I'm there on my cross country trials bike. And I rode with those guys. And, and again, in those days, the North Shore, was known for its skinnies and these these trials kind of moves and really like nerve wracking. You would ride a skinny up in the trees, like 15 feet off the ground. Right. There was no room for mistake. You couldn't even jump down. There was no, you know, was, there was also branches at the bottom that could spear you or kill you, you know. And and so I rode with those guys and it was eye opening and cool. And then the next year when I came again. I asked some guy at GT if I could borrow a, a full-on downhill bike. And at the time we had the, I forgot what model it was, the GT downhill bike with like you know, 180 mil travel or more. No, it was after that. It was the one that was a bit more of a downhill bike than a, than a trail bike. And, and anyway, but I took that bike up there and I, it was such an eye opener. I was think I, it felt like I was sitting on a sofa and somebody was just pushing me off these cliffs and drops, and it was so plush to land and almost easy. I thought like, oh, that's cheating, you know? That's so much easier on a hardtail. It's so much harder and it's hard on your neck. And if you don't precisely land, you're gonna crash. And on the full suspension bike, you just steer it down. And in a way, it I lost a little bit um, of respect from the free riders who go like, well, that's actually not as hard as it as it looks, you know, if you have the right bike for it. And that's when I also started kind of adopting to these downhill bikes and doing a bit more of that stuff. But in the meantime, uh, these guys had discovered the downhill bikes before me. And that's where they were able to take the sport also to the next level, you know. So, but isn't yeah talking about this uh, taking the sport to next level? I think it's really interesting that uh, that despite all these uh, other things happening around you, you kept your your track right, your adventure rides, you kept your Zoscar, um, you tried things, you tried everything, but still you you kept your line for decades. And <clears throat> so, coming to to the point of e bike, uh, even now take it to e bike. When when did you start riding your first e bikes? You know, my first ever e-bike ride was in 1997 with President George Bush Sr. You're kidding me. And that's a funny story itself because I had the rare opportunity to meet him for a photo shoot and or for a photo opportunity at some investment thing from GT. And I was like, at the time, I wasn't a big Bush fan. And I said, I, I, I'm only interested if I can um, take a photo with my bike. And then they were like, well, then you have to wait till the very end and you can bring your bike in. So then I came in and I literally made, I hopped on my back wheel next to him and I asked him instead of shaking my hand to shake my front wheel and he shook my front wheel and he was a really cool guy and we talked. And at the same time, GT was just investing into an e-bike company. Imagine how far ahead of the curve they were. And I tell you, like I said before, if Richard Long wouldn't have died, GT, I mean, they were ahead with on every level. Even then, they had an e-bike, and we showed it to Bush, 
and Bush was like riding in the hotel room. It was a big room, like not a like a conference room. And he was doing some laps, and he was like, "I need one of those for Barbara, his wife." Right. And then I need actually like two more for the Secret Service guys so they can keep up with us. And that was my first e-bike ride. And then in 2000, I want to say nine, uh, uh, I converted one of my regular GT full suspension bikes, a GT Force uh, with a Bionic system. That was one of those early e-bike nice. uh, systems with the rear hub, with the rear hub wheel. And you could just put a battery on your, on your battery, uh, on your water bottle, you know, thing and, and you and I rode it around, and I really kind of liked them. But I used it a bit more for riding in town. And I, I remember using using it on a couple mountain bike rides and saying to people, "Wow, it's it's still quite a workout, but it you feel like you like on doping or something, you know? You have like this extra fifteen twenty percent." But um, and and then I started talking e bikes. Ever since then, I, I um. I was really kind of intrigued and wanted to do more, but the industry wasn't quite ready. And I remember even before it really got big in Europe, you know, which Europe is five years ahead when it comes to e-bikes to the, to the rest of the yeah. world. But even before it took off in Europe, I remember walking around Europe by tell, telling people and they were like looking at me like with this smirk, like, oh, you're getting old. Oh, you got some gray hair now, Hans, you know, you need an e-bike. And, and since then, of course, we all have learned that there's so much more to e-bikes and it has really evolved. And and finally, then GT also started making an e-bike um, about five, six years ago. And ever since then, I have completely embraced it. And I'm an official Shimano Steps um, e-bike ambassador. And it's kind of fun to rediscover all these new opportunities options it opens up so many possibilities and makes me want to go back on some of my early adventures and see if i can do them on an e-bike so speaking about new possibilities you've been riding for for ages what what are the new possibilities you see for riding e-bikes it opens up new doors like even on your own home trails all of a sudden you can ride in the opposite direction where you could have maybe never ridden before if you don't have the strengths or the skills or you can go further you can ride with different kinds of people the people don't have to be on the same fitness level you know they can be a lot stronger than you or they can be a lot less strong than you but you guys can still kind of hang together and you can and it's kind of brought in the fun factor you know like i like i said we had a lot of this new we experienced a lot of these things in the in the boom days and new technology and new things and everything was new and exciting and then later it be, the mountain biking became a bit more about fitness and training and you know training for a transalp or even people would train to go on a rats ride with us to be able to hang because the rides were so demanding and they wouldn't wait long around. If you don't make it up the hill within five minutes, they're gone. And and that kind of was fun and cool in its own ways, but it, it took sometimes the fun out of it. And and I miss that playfulness of playing around and try to ride up some stairs on an e-bike or something, you know, and, and not necessarily being completely, like, uh, tired after a ride, you know, so... Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, <laughs> so the the rats uh, when you guys go riding is is it a mix of of uh, standard bikes and, and e bikes or is it separate? How do you deal with that? 
it's um, we kind of have two groups now. We call it the E group. So we all meet together, but then the, the E group usually does their own right. So sometimes we mix it up a little bit, and uh, sometimes we do our own thing. But especially the e bikes have really caught on in the last a year and a half, and that's been like the pandemic time where our rights have been kind of limited and small anyway, and you know, so so we we need to. We need to get past this pandemic to really see where we stand. But besides the pandemic, have from your point of view, have the have e-bikes arrived in the US now? Yeah, they definitely have, and they and then they're not going to go away. Right. I mean, yes, we still have we still have a lot of work to do in terms of there's a lot of new people now riding on the trails, and we need to educate them. We need to teach them etiquette, how to behave. And, you know, the trails also get more crowded and more used because of e-bikers. And we need to all take that into consideration and find solutions. And in, in America, just like in Europe, I mean, the e-bike thing, if the laws change, it could go away. Imagine if, if in Europe they would decide uh, we don't, like, put the e-bikes into the bicycle category anymore. We put them into the motorcycle category then forget about riding in the Alps, forget about riding your local right. single trails. So we need to we need to be all responsible and we need to make sure that there's also an understanding of the different types of electric vehicles or e-bikes, you know, and I'm a strict uh, supporter of the Category 1 pedal assist, which are the bikes. I'm not into the, the ones with the throttle or with all these super powerful engines and stuff, you know, that's a whole different thing. And um, we need to make sure to, to preserve that so we can be treated like bicycles. Let, let's go to, to another uh, part of your being Hans is that uh, you, you started the charity wheels for life. How, how did this get started? Um, well, obviously this, The sport has been really good to me. I had a, a career that I never would have dreamt of. And I traveled to a lot of these places where in, in like developing countries where bikes have a very different meaning. You know, for us, bikes are sport object or, a, you know, like, yeah, some people use them for transportation too, but it's like a luxury item almost. And, But in, in some third world countries, be it in Africa or in China or whatever, um, if you have a bike, you have mobility. That means you can get places. You can go to find work or go work or you can go bring your products to the market or students right. have to walk to school, sometimes five, 10 kilometers, you know, one way. And if they have a bike, they can not only get there much faster, but they can be punctual and they can can go regular to school and get an education. And so so we started Wheels for Life. And basically, yeah, we, it's a nonprofit that gives bikes to people in developing countries uh, that need transportation. And we've got, to date, I think we've given away almost around 14,000 bikes in 32 countries. It's my wife, Carmen, and I who basically run the charity. I mean, we have a board and all that, but Nobody, including ourselves, nobody gets paid. We all do it volunteer. I even pay for my own flights whenever I visit a project somewhere. Right. And um, it's a nice thing. It's nice to give back. And, and so you involve your other sponsors as well, or how's this, how's it working? Yeah, they, they can and they have. A lot of my sponsors have supported us over the year. 
and anybody can support it you know like it's it's a neutral thing and it doesn't have to rely on my own sponsors i sometimes have to be careful you know that you know i mean a lot of the sponsors want to help because it's a good thing but at the right. same time they don't have unlimited money to throw at everything and everywhere you know so i i don't want to ask them always but there's a lot of individual people who help us people do fundraisers for us small or big Nothing is too small. If somebody wants to have a, a cookie sale or lemonade sale in front of their house and raises $75, that's, that's half a bicycle and that's just as welcome uh, than a big company drawing a big check at us. So the, that means like a one bike is $150? Approximately. That's what we say. It depends from country to country because we actually buy the bikes in the countries where we need them because It makes it, 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 we save all this money in shipping and customs and duties, but we also fuel the local economy and it makes it easier for the people to find spare parts. So our project leaders, we buy the bikes there and on an average, sometimes the bike is only $100 and sometimes we pay $200 or $220 or $50, uh, depends on the bike. You know, like for example, if you're in a mountainous area, you need a bike with gears. But if you live in the flats in Africa, you you might not need right. gears. You might much rather have a bike with a rack that you can transport 100 kilos of potatoes or, or mangoes or whatever. So, Yeah, um, definitely a different way to look at making the best out of two wheels. And uh, it's great to see that you, like uh, others, are investing in, and, as you said, giving back. The other part I want to be curious, especially for the European listeners, is like Hall of Fame. You know, Hall of Fame for us in Europe is something American, something we sometimes hear about American football or hockey um, or, or basketball. But there's a Hall of Fame of mountain bike, and uh, you've been uh, part of it. You've been selected, and uh, and you've been very active. Um, in what ways? And, and can you... Give Europeans a, a picture about that. Yeah, Hall of Fame is a place where people from a sport or an industry or anything, it could be the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, they get recognized for extraordinary contributions, what they've done. And, you know, there's people who've done more than win a championship or have a number one hit single in the radio or so, but they have done stuff that had really influenced that industry, sport, or generations of people. And um, and the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame is not different. And they started early on. It's, a, it's an American thing. And at the, at the beginning, it was very American. And the guys who did it, they, they could have done it better because some people slipped into the Hall of Fame because they were friends of those people. And somebody could argue, well, this guy shouldn't be in. And Yes, there's always these arguments can always come, but the 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 Hall of Fame was revamped about ten years ago when it moved from Crested Butte to uh, Marine County, and Joe Breeze and Otis Guy and a bunch of other people, some of these old school uh, clunker mountain bikes guys, they took it over, and ever since then I've been part of a committee that decides or suggests who should be on there. Okay. Until, rec until recently, it was also a bit of a popularity contest. Basically, you could vote. And, you know, and, and voting is not right because you shouldn't be able to buy votes and, you know, buy your way in there. It should be 
people who really understand the history and the relationships and see your contributions and see the ripple effect your contributions had, you know, on the whole industry that, you know, and those people should be rewarded. And then, you know, one has to also ask the question, well, if this person gets in, wouldn't there be, or would there be another person that might deserve it more than that person? And then that's when you have to really understand all the different subcultures our sport have. And, and we've done, we, there's, I don't know how many people are in the Hall of Fame today. It's like probably 120 or more. But, um, and, and in the last few years, we really brought in a few people that were overseen. And then also we really made it, made sure that really the people who had a ripple effect. And that's how people, you know, we've started bringing in more international people like Uli Stantio or Wolfgang Renner from Germany or Glenn Jacobs from Australia who invented not only Forecross, but did one of the first free ride films ever. And he, he like, he's one of the best trail builders in the world and influenced the whole continent of Australia majorly when it comes to mountain biking. People like that who really, so it's not necessarily everybody who won a world championship once gets into the Hall of Fame. You have to do a bit more than that. And it's really the, the, the guys who stand out and made a difference. And, you know, like I'm sure in the future, a Danny McCaskill will be in there. He had a huge ripple effect. There's no questions asked or a Rachel Atherton will sure be in there. But we kind of trying to do it a little bit chronological. So, and we still like right now starting to bring in free riders and international riders and, and kind of trying to get the complete, uh, make it complete, but also at the same time preserve the story of our sport. And there's a beautiful museum, the Marine Bicycle Museum in Fairfax, where, which is kind of separate from the Hall of Fame, but they're in the same building. And they display all these really cool bicycles in there, but they have also bios and and information on all the Hall of Famers. And normally when we don't have a pandemic, we have a ceremony once a year where anybody can buy a ticket and there's a nice dinner and all the new people who get inducted every year. It's like usually four to six people get inducted. Okay, yeah. um, they, you know, so it's a, it's a cool thing. And yes, I want to help preserve this history. And I'm also one of the person who understands it because I've been there from the beginning to almost the beginning to now. And I, I also have a, you know, there's a lot of different subcultures we have to consider. Like, like what can you give an example of the subcultures? Well, our, our sport has subcultures like single speeders right. or um, free riders or enduro or um, gravel or well, gravel is not really mountain biking, but um, you know, the trial scene or the urban guys or the, then like, Subcultures can also be like engineers, you know, who invented a suspension system, like a or a, or a, guy, a frame builder, like um, you know, like like Joe Breeze or Tom Ritchie, or it can be a a guy who started like NICA, you know, the high school mountain biking league, which is the which is the biggest thing in mountain biking since the boom is NICA. We have like all these high schools now. There's really a boom of young people riding mountain bikes, which is so good to see. Great, and and so people like that, or the guy who started Imba, or the guy who um, maybe a journalist who had extraordinary uh, contributions to the sport. So all that. Are you, are you involved in Nika in this project? 
Um, not only from the sidelines. I've supported them. I've done some talks. I know the people, and um, I, I, like I said, I'm. I think it's an awesome thing. I came to one of their early fundraisers before it got really big and did a talk. But other than that, I I know we have like even a, a high school league here in our town in Laguna Beach now, and it's really amazing how much it not only does for cycling and getting kids away from the computers and on bikes and into nature, but it turns the whole family into cyclists. You know, then the, all of a sudden the the mother buys a mountain bike too, and the sister buys one, and the father gets one again. He might have stopped riding like ten years ago or twenty years ago, and now he rides again and. And that is also good for the bike industry we're working in because all these people buy bikes and help us build the industry. And, and at the same time, we, we're doing a good, good thing by building the sport and, and creating a whole new generation of shredders. Right. And, and as you said, you know, getting the kids away from their, their smartphones. Um, and Nike is something that is definitely a, a North American project. And I don't know if anything similar in Europe. Do you? I haven't heard, but I, I, it must come and it must be, um, I mean, yeah, it must come. I mean, mountain biking is now really accepted. There's a lot more to it than racing. There's so many aspects, like we say, and, and hopefully, um, hopefully we can find a way in Europe to integrate. I mean, but Europe has a big advantage. I mean, the bikes are already so integrated in the culture. So America needs the Nike thing more than Europe, but um, at the same time, it would be cool to bring bikes to the schools. And there's another little charity I'm helping all kids bikes, and they their goal is to get every preschool kid on a bike, like even those Strider bikes, you know, the ones without pedals, right. where you have your feet on the ground. And that's a whole other. And there's so many, there's so many cool organizations and 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 ways to get people out and ride. Um, it's, it's, it's fantastic. It's a really good time to be a mountain biker. Yeah, definitely. Especially now with, uh, as you said, uh, uh, so many cultures and so many technologies and, and varieties. Um, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Kevin, Kevin, your friend who, who got you to the S and who, who had the vision of growing the sport. Um, You're still in contact with him? What, what's Kevin doing today? A little bit. Kevin had a very interesting life. He lives now in Hawaii, mm. and he kind of stepped away from the whole uh, from the whole biking scene. And his passion, he came initially, he came from motorcycle trials. He was a very talented rider. And then he crossed over to mountain biking and did the trial thing. And he did that for, you know, like five, six years. And then he became like, he always had these jobs, like, You know, he was in the pit crew of a race car team then for a while. And then he he would, like, look after the most expensive property in, in Corona del Mar at this super rich lady's house. And now he's, like, married to some or some old county, country uh, music star in Hawaii where he lives on this huge ranch. And and he's he's been kind of, you know, I see him only every five years or so briefly. So he's kind of stepped away, but he definitely um, changed my life. Um, you know, without him, I wouldn't be where I am. That's a nice, nice story. Hans, so like you also mentioned uh, milestones and, and people like uh, Uli, you know, from, from Bike Magazine or Jen, Klepp, Jen uh, Glenn, 
Jacobs um, from Australia. Yep. So you, with all your experience over the last uh, 35 years, um, from your point of view, what, what were like the three, the three big milestones or, or pivot points in, in mountain biking that, that pushed it to the next level? If you'd like to name three. For the sport? For the in sport general, or for in me? In general, like, if, no, if, if you look at, at mountain bike first, not at you. Well, the boom, I mean, there, there was this, yeah, like the boom in the 90s that made it cool and everybody wanted to have a bike and then, And then there were, and there was rock and roll, and uh, but then the technology evolved so much, you know, with with carbon and hydraulic and full suspension. And then later came then this this new wave of the free ride thing that that opened a bit of a lifestyle and the bike park thing, you know, like in Europe, bike parks and free ride and. And all that kind of gravity lifestyle thing opened up a whole new door to a new kind of rider. And and then the whole internet social media thing changed the, pl the playing field again. And and I think now the next frontier is the e-bikes. Okay. So. And then again, like, what were the three three biggest milestones for you in your career? If you had the name three. Well, there's game, there, there's highlights and then there's game changers. You know, a highlight, some would say, like uh, performing at the Atlanta Olympic Games at the closing ceremony at this, with in front of like several billion people. You know, you could call that a highlight or, you know, but the milestone in terms of there was these key people starting out with uh, this guy named Michael Lai, who was a, a mentor when I was still in Germany and who really built the trial scene in Germany and uh, in Europe at the time. And then from there, I, you know, was, of course, Kevin Norton bringing me to America. And then Richard Long was like a mentor who was the, the founder of GT who signed me. So these, these were like, I would say the, the three most important people in terms of that. And then career highlights, honestly, it's, it, I've been blessed to have experienced so many things, you know, like you said, like 47 projects, you know, like, yeah, I've been to over 70 countries and I've met so many cool people and there's a lot of really nice memories, big ones and small ones. And, and, um, I, I literally put together this week, I found an, an old chronological biography where I had for every year the highlights, you know, just like two or three sentences, but it stopped in 2000. And it was really interesting to read what I'd done, what those highlights were until the year 2000. And then I just completed it this week because I, I thought like, well, I, I should like complete this. And I just did it. And I'm, I literally told my web guy to put it on my website, on my bio. So it's up there now, but it gives a lot more of an insight of, of all that stuff, including things like that. I almost became a rollerblader or that I, you know, or other little milestones, you know, everybody has their own little records, be it a, a race win or be it the first guy to, to have a, have a website in mountain biking, you know, all those little involvements were milestones, you know, Which, um, which are kind of interesting. You've always been really good at, uh, at uh, taking notes and, and putting things on your website and keeping journals all your way, way back when, when the website just started. Um, 
One one story I want to share, I don't know whether you remember, that where really your website saved my butt was at our trip to Brazil. Yeah. Do you remember what happened in 2001? So, you know, like we, we, we all flew in from different places and I had the luck to bring in all the clothing, all the forks, all product. And I came with six bags and boxes into customs in Brazil, in Sao Paulo. <laughs> and I was stuck there like for four hours. And they just wouldn't let me go. And they said, you got to pay or ship back. And, and I knew they would send me back or I had to pay a lot of money, which I didn't have. And in the end, I just kept persisting, saying the same thing that we're here to make this photo shoot and athletes come in. And then finally I said, look up at Hans Ray's website. And luckily there it was. You had the story of like, Hey, I'm going to Brazil with, uh, Dirk Belling and <laughs> with, uh, with Greg Herbold and we're doing photo shoots. And, uh, so I was so thankful to this one guy who got in a lot of trouble from the other ones because he looked up the webpage and said, here, see, yeah, my name is there, my passport and all the people I told you. In the end, you know, after, I don't know, I felt like five, six hours, I, I could leave with all the bags and, and all the boxes and, you know, we made this trip happen. So um, thanks to your note taking in advance, <laughs> um, you know, this trip uh, was one yeah. of our highlights. Um and that was and and a photo you took. I want to just mention that real quick. I know we we have to wrap no, it up, but um, the photo you took of me on the Corcovado, yes. um, looking Brazil is like one of the one of the greatest photos maybe of all mountain biking, you know, and definitely in my in my book. So so thanks, thanks again. Yeah, and and here again, you know, this this uh, in terms of learnings, that was definitely something um, I learned in this trip. Maybe not at that trip, but now looking back. Um, the patience and that there will be this one moment. Because if you remember, like we had special permission, we had to be there at six o'clock and only had like an hour from six to seven before they would open for public. And then yeah, um, for some reason, um, HB and you had a hard time getting up that morning and we had a hard time getting going. And I think we only had 20 minutes left without spectators. And I was freaking because they're like, hey, once in a lifetime, we're up here at the Cocovaro. And those guys are a little bit slow this morning. Again, <laughs> we got there. You jumped on it. We got the shot and um, another another great adventure. So, Hans, we said 47 big projects uh, despite Corona. Are you are you working on, on 48, 49, and 50 Oh yeah, I, I, and I'm planning all three of them already. So my latest thing has been these urban adventures, and um, I'm working on one as we speak. So hopefully, I'll have some more stuff soon. Hans, thank you so much. This was a great uh, hour and a half talking through your history, history of mountain biking, great name dropping, all the details. Yeah. Um, as you said, you know, we're definitely blessed to having been part of this and are still part of this exciting um, journey of mountain biking with e-bikes. So thank you a lot. Um, all the best of you and uh, to you. And uh, I hope to see you soon somewhere on the trail here in Europe with your e-bike. 
Sounds good, Dirk. Thank you. And uh, thanks for taking me down memory lane. <laughs> and, Welcome. Yeah. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm a big fan of Hans. What an impressive career. Still going strong and giving back so much to the sport. Congrats. I'm sure many of you have met Hans somewhere around the globe in action. If you like to share your personal Hans Ray story or give feedback about this episode, you can send me a mail to info at the minus brand minus explorer.com or leave an online review. Thank you. If you are a fan of Hans as well, thank you for sharing. Enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm.